Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today, I am pleased to bring you a great conversation with Alistair Wilson. Alistair has had an amazing life, blessed with personal, family, and business successes, including two trips to the Olympics and the founding of Lendl Paddles. He's an original innovator in the world of paddle design, and today we hear his story firsthand. Now, before we get to our chat with Alistair, Level 6 has been a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we've got a special offer just for you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware and other kit, visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order. I have had a long sleeve and a short sleeve dry top as well as a pair of their pants for the past few years now, and when I purchased them, they instantly became favorites. So check them out if you've not had them before. Also, if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here is your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. So enjoy today's episode with Alistair Wilson. Hello, Alistair. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hello, John. Thank you for asking me along. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity here. This has been this is going to be fantastic. Well, I really look forward to to stories of your of your paddling. So, what got you started as a paddler? I think the first I was into sailing as a child, but it started off here at Lendl Foot. Now, if I just describe, I was born in India three weeks before war broke out. I arrived back in in Scotland in 1946, and I stayed in Prestwick, which is at the lower end of the Firth of Clyde. Now, the Firth of Clyde is a continuation of the River Clyde. And of course, you'll have heard of the Clyde for shipbuilding and um, the, its past, industrial past. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, now, it opens up quite to about probably 25 miles or so where we are. But uh, Prestwick is about 17 miles between Prestwick and Ar- the island of Arran. Now, that's regarded as a, as a literally a miniature of Scotland. Okay. And it's got mountains, it's beautiful. And then beyond that, you've got the Mull of Kintyre, which stretches down, down south of us here. Uh, we are 30 miles south at Lendl, at Lendl Foot. And we have uh, Mull of Kintyre, and then straight opposite, the granite rock of Hills of Craig, which is the world's best granite for curling stones. Oh. Yeah, it's a plug oh. of a, an ancient volcano. Now, in a clear day, we can also see Ireland. So there you have... A phenomenal backdrop to paddle in. I mean, yeah. you just, it's just, and sunsets here are just magnificent. And you add into this mix a bit of an adrenaline junkie who loves rough water. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's perfect. But it all started with a raft my father made me at Lendlefoot when I was about seven years old. And it was just a door. He got a door. Dad, Dad was a genius at, at cobbling things together. <laughs> It was a door. He put two planks on it that made like two wings and then strapped on uh, five gallon drums at the end of each wing. Into that was nailed a box. Now I'd be about seven and a half. My sister was probably about four. So she sat in the box and off we went. There's a very rocky shoreline here. And we were tethered to the shore with a big rope to make sure we <laughs> we weren't too adventurous. <laughs> so that was my first craft. Then we made a huge leap in design. 
and got the rear inner tube out of a, a Ferguson tractor. I don't know if you're aware, the Ferguson was one of the first tractors ever made. Okay. Very small, so a, re a very small rear wheel. So we blew that up, put a girdle around to squeeze it into a more pleasing, <laughs> streamlined shape, <laughs> put some planks under it, under the seat, and I got a paddle, and that was my first craft that I could control a little bit on the sea. Okay. That was used until we went to a holiday up in uh, the, the um, Pentland Firth, right up in the north of Scotland. Now, the Pentland Firth is notorious for currents and huge waves and everything, and I was out surfing in the... <laughs> We called it bulbous bump <laughs> when I was wiped out by a wave, lost the girdle, and of course never found the girdle. So I finished up on the shore with slats of timber and a round inner tube, and it was never resurrected from that. <laughs> so your first surfing experience is on an inner tube. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. I was desperate to get out in my own boat, where I, which I could control myself. And a next door neighbour had a, a really old lath and canvas boat which was so heavy with paint, you know, it'd been painted and painted, but I just, I drooled over this. So when I was 16, I thought, and I'd built a number of model aircraft, you know, the the old balsa wood model aircraft where sure. it's built with stringers and, and frames and everything. Mm -hmm. I had heard of the Percy Blandford range of kayaks. So they were all made from kit, either from kits or you bought the, the bits of wood and cut out the plywood yourself and made up your boat. So that was my, my PBK-10. I ordered that without telling mum and dad, <laughs> sold my stamp collection to raise enough money to buy the wood. And it was a fait accompli. I took it along uh, after a meal one night. I, I opened the tin, said I had enough money to build my first kayak. And the plans were there. And they, of course, at that time, kayaking was... Normally, reports were about drowning and accidents. You know, you didn't hear much about any sort of achievement <laughs> done in kayaks. So it, it was a bit of a risk, obviously, in their minds, but they probably thought well, I got a bit wet, wet, and I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't last very long. However, the first paddle stroke I took in that boat, and it was just like building that model aircraft, but full size, and you could use it. You could paddle in it. I mean, how, what's, what's better than that? And what, what, was that, what was that first boat constructed of? Uh, lath and canvas. So and yeah, canvas, that's the okay. traditional build going right back thousands of years. You know, the Eskimos used bone and any wood they could find and mm -hmm. then skin. By the early 60s, and I'm so lucky to have lived through this period, I, I felt it was the halcyon days of paddling in many, many ways because the clubs proliferated in Scotland up the coast and everybody built their own, well, not everybody built their own, own boats, but a lot of people built their own boats and also designed their own boats. And of course, you can imagine both good and bad, mainly sure. bad, were designed. <laughs> but you could you could be creative and make something. So what I made what was described as the shortest satisfactory canoe, which was ten feet long and thirty inches wide. Okay. So it was like a bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> I launched it at Lendlefoot, took my first paddle stroke, rose over the first wave, and that was me hooked. Yeah. That, my life changed from that moment on so you started on a door and then yes. migrated up to the ferguson tractor inner tube yes and then into the boat that you built yes and and that ends up leading you to racing so tell us yes. about that first race well in in that period you've probably never heard of it but we had the davis handicap system okay now this I've was not. because 
we could every club had touring boats none had none had the racing boat i had but each boat had different girth different length so it's different speed so the davis handicap system was a was worked out with a, by a dr davis measuring girth and length applied to a formula and you got a handicap for the race right. the, the length of the race right so my r1 did me no favors in girth, <laughs> as you can imagine yeah and length because it's 17 feet long now cunning devils a lot of these clubs had also designed boats with a with a high girth behind the cockpit but a reasonable waterline so in other words the davis handicap system went out the window slightly with these boats so i was up against all these sort of slightly shorter racing machines in my my racing machine which really was a racing machine so i launched and i had what was it five minutes of a handicap on a six mile race which meant the, the back markers were about a mile away when i started on the harbor wall were a whole lot of the west coast touring worthies you know who really who really went out in incredible weather and that sort of thing looking down at me circling around waiting to start and i could hear the mutterings going on you'll never get over the harbor bar in that thing fortunately i got over the harbor bar and when i went out to sea it was much like the conditions i'd been facing you know down at lentil foot so i started really reveling in it the problem was i was so far behind i didn't know where the leaders were oh and i just had to go as fast as i could no pace judgment involved and as i entered the harbor there was one boat in front of me and I passed it just as I reached the finishing line. So I'd won my first race. Oh, wow. Just out of the blue, you know. <laughs> and so that, of course, fired me to to do a bit more. I eventually bought a Rapido, which was the racing international racing K1, which was going to be used for the next Olympic Games and was the current one in use. And I ordered that and decided to race it at the International Regatta on the, in Hyde Park in London for my first the, the international race. So uh, <laughs> I was supposed to get this boat three weeks before I left home. However, it didn't arrive and it didn't arrive and finally drove down with a friend in my little Anglia, Ford Anglia. Okay. Just under a litre this car was. <laughs> Took us 14 and a half hours to get to London. Got our bed and breakfast. Went to Richmond Canoe Club. And I tried a K1 out there because I had, but mine was still wasn't ready, and the regatta was the next day, so I was put onto the Thames in a boat that is built for speed. The finish is shiny, it's veneer. They were made of veneer, beautiful, beautiful Danish built boats. Literally, you can't chew your chewing gum on one side, or you capsize. That's how <laughs> unstable they are. You know, you've got to chew your chewing gum in the middle. So I was put out in the Thames, having never paddled one of these things, and uh, it was an absolute nightmare. So the, the K1 event didn't go down too well at the, the regatta, but I did the NCK event, which was a racing boat in Britain at that time, a national chine, you know what a chine boat is? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, angle between two planes, it's, it's built with a, 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 an angled bottom and then two sides on it, just in plywood uh, normally, and it's quite stable but you can make them narrow and make them into a good racing shape so i was so pent up by the time i did the um, final of the nck event that i was leading the race till about 10 yards from the finish when 
a lad called Peter White just just passed me, and we both bo broke broke the course record on the serpentine. <laughs> now, fate has an incredible way of behaving. Peter comes off the water, and he's trained by my now wife Marion. And Peter said to Marion, "Who the hell's this bloke Wilson?" She said, "Don't worry about him. He's a flash in the pan." <laughs> So that was my start. And from that, John, a gentleman in Birmingham who had been the team manager for the Olympic team in Rome, who was encyclopedic on, on results worldwide, saw my record and invited me down to a training courses during the winter at Birmingham. Yeah. So I joined the top Midlands paddlers for a training weekend every month. So now, how much time has elapsed from the from your first race to this point? A few months. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's a yeah. that's a quick progression through the sport. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so that that went really well, and then apart from the long journey, sometimes it took us fourteen hours to get to Birmingham. You know, it was just unbelievable. Anyway, and I have to do all the driving, so it was it, I was quite isolated here. So it progressed really from there. To my absolute astonishment, I did the 10,000 meter British Championship. Now, I couldn't do a sprint start and I couldn't do a turn. I just was left behind at the start, just fought my way around on the sort of outskirts of things, but found myself in the, in, the, in the leading group by about halfway through the race. And then I was harried by an unscrupulous paddler who tried to knock me in. But anyway, do you know, I won that race. I won my first title knowing absolutely nothing about paddling a K1. Yeah, and this is on a boat that you've you've just barely barely even paddled. Yeah, just a month or two. Now, that is completely down to all my sea kayaking and running that I'd done. I just by accident did everything right and by pure luck it all came together. I knew absolutely nothing about what training to do and there was very little knowledge of that. A Saturday would be running 14 and a half miles, pick up a barley sugar, no, nothing to drink, or kayaks, and paddle a further nine and a half miles with 27 portages round locks and be timed over the last thousand metres. And all we could think of was the pint of orange juice at the <laughs> pub at Wooten Wooing at the end of this. <laughs> what you think of nowadays, the nutrition and all the, the science that goes into training. Sure. It's amazing we survived, yeah. really. So that leads you to the 1964 and the 1968 Olympics. So tell us a little bit more about those yes. experiences. Well, 68 was a, a great disappointment because after 64, with with work and designing and building my first paddle, trying to fit work in, I mean, I would often train in the evening and then go back to work afterwards. You know, it was this sort of situation. I finally decided I wouldn't train for Mexico because it was just too much. And in fact, my doctor said, well, you've got to do one or the other. I was persuaded to return and stroke the K4. In other words, sit in the front of the, the four-man kayak because I seem to have a, an, a, an innate timing ability, you know, for, for, for crew boats. So that was the situation. Now, twice I stopped and twice I was persuaded to come back. So I lost five months of training the year prior to 68 and then I had to start up at the turn of the year, you know, it was far too late. But when I got to Mexico, because of my, except, I mean, a 36, 36 beat pulse um, at sea level, huge 25% over capacity and strength lungs, I was absolutely suited to seven and a half thousand feet. 
everybody else was having terrible problems, um, you know, collapsing. And and I actually, we were there for five weeks or six weeks, supposedly climatizing. Now it takes a year to get full acclimatization at, at altitude. The Norwegians flew in a day or so two before the event and won the K4 and we'd beaten them in Germany in some weeks before that. So the, the medical advice was, was, was not very good. Anyway, the, the final time trial, I cruised that quite easily. So I thought, right, I did the singles and the four in Tokyo. They're bound to put me in the four and the singles. And unfortunately, the selectors didn't. They kept me in the four because they thought that was the best chance we had. Well, that's your fact. The time trial I did, the time, the, now the conditions were the same all the time, flat cam. My time in the time trial would have got me fourth place in the final. And the Dane, who was current world Olympic and European champion, had beaten me by one length. That's my, my bows opposite his stern as we crossed the line in Tokyo. I would have been in exactly the same position almost in Mexico. He got the bronze medal. Impressive. You can imagine how I felt after that. Yeah. So that was the end of my kind of serious uh, career in, in racing. But I made another comeback in 71. Got back in the team. And then everything just came in on me. Far too much to do. So I had to give that up. Okay. And then my final foray into into competition, I'll just and I'll finish with that. It was the World Masters, which I did when I was fifty. Okay. And the Hungarian teams, oh, they they had the booklets on their team and what they'd all done and everything. But this time, I don't think any drugs were involved. I think we were all it was just a fabulous regatta of older paddlers. We're all age banded in five year increments. And my partner, I won both doubles, the five hundred and the five thousand. And I won both the singles, 5,000 and 500. So, you know, without drugs, it gives you, you know, it gives you some sort of idea of, of what kind of potential we did have, but was obviously not, not fully realized. But I have no regrets. I've absolutely no regrets. I've been so lucky. I met my wife. She was a Londoner and we, she was in the team. And, and I've just got a lovely family, lovely children, grandchildren out of that. And it's just, it's just been wonderful. Tell us about the 1964 Olympics. 1964, um, Tokyo, absolutely fantastic. They'd spent a huge amount of money on, on, on the games. We were at Sagami, which was probably about 35, 30 miles outside Tokyo. Now, Lake Sagami had been built specially for the kayaking and canoeing, and it was in a beautiful little lake, man-made, with a dam at one end, and the typical Japanese pine-crad you no know, steep hills, just an absolutely beautiful setting with just light, lights of industry round about in a village. And the building, the finishing tower, the village, everything, the auditorium had all been built specially for the canoeists and paddlers. So it was just an absolutely idyllic spot. And the course was beautiful. It really was lovely. Just to go through to eventually the final. I mean, when you're paddling up to a final like that and you're a complete novice as I was, I mean... I'd take part in about one or two internationals. These guys were doing 10 or 12 a year, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, circle around at the top. <laughs> Could you imagine the feelings I had as I was circling around, looking at all these superstars, you know, thinking, I hope to goodness I don't get left way behind, you know. <laughs> so in those days, the lanes are always beautiful. They're, they're, you know, they're about 500 boys in, in the 1,000-meter course. The girls do 500 and the men do 1,000 meters and you you look down the course and every boy's in line no matter what 
angle you're looking at it just absolutely amazing so you circle round, nobody talking <laughs> and you're called forward into your lane i was lane eight so i was fairly late called forward now at that time you had to back up to a, a starting raft with uh, somebody on the raft to hold you mm. uh, hold your stern and push you forward or pull you back if you're out of line to for the starter All right. now you just paddle into a, a chalk block which holds the bow which is a lot easier you know but when you're nervous you've got to turn down into the course you've got to face down that course knowing you're going to have to do that in about four minutes and then you've got to back your pad your kayak a very unstable kayak mm -hmm. back to the starting raft and hope that the guy gets a hold of it <laughs> so so there you are lined up finally last one in you're being held and then there's that moment of silence when the world stands still and there's nothing in your mind but what you're looking down at you know you're, you're absolutely isolated and insulated from everything absolute silence then are you ready bang and of course with a sprint start it's one big long pool powerful pool and then you build up and you should be hitting your full speed in 10 strokes you know which can be up up about 90 strokes something like that so off we go and after about six strokes bang false start oh so can you imagine bow waves die down you know bit of cursing going on back to circling around and called get being, being called back into line again and off we go again now first do 50 now it's very much like the mile when you run a mile the fourth lap is the hard sorry third lap is the hardest because you've got to really keep your position and then have enough to finish it's the same thing in a thousand meter k1 so you're you're flashing past these boys you're trying to watch where everybody is uh, peterson the swede and uh vernescu the romanian the hess the uh, hungarian started to pull slowly ahead but i was in line with most of the others so i thought oh, that's not that's not bad but the sheer tension of the moment my grip was far too tight on the paddle shaft so my forearm started to build up lactic acid and i thought oh my goodness i'm going to see you know I, so i tried to relax my hands you know to make sure i wasn't going to seize up and when i looked across i was i was up with er eric hansen and i thought good he's the world olympic and european champion i'm not doing that bad and there's somebody behind me i thought gosh the russians behind me so that spurred me on a bit so into the third quarter and i really was having to fight hard to keep going and i dropped back to eighth place out of nine but as i say it was only a length down on hansen and i was only probably two or three seconds down on the fifth place or something you know there wasn't a heck of a lot in it peterson and hess they, they broke four minutes uh but actually i wasn't completely a complete washout you know yeah <laughs> so well, there you are in the final and within only a few months of, of racing i know i know three, three years yeah yeah so all that experience then leads you to found lendl yes i was looking at my paddle my beautiful limonat paddle when i got back from after tokyo it would be and I thought I'd love, I loads loved woodworking. That was one thing I was good at at school. You know, my, I wasn't academic in the sense that I didn't, I wasn't that good at, although doing engineering as, as, as my future, I wasn't that good at maths or 
but I, I loved art. I loved uh, technical drawing. I loved mechanics. I loved, you know, that sort of side of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I started analyzing the way these paddles were made, and I thought, my goodness, there's one heck of a lot of work in them. And, you know, you're talking about something like over 30 pieces of wood in one paddle. Now, you can't just make a paddle, carve it out of a one solid piece of wood. Mm -hmm. You've got to laminate, with this particular model anyway, you've got to laminate a bit, a, a blade into a double curvature. You've got to laminate a shaft with a hollow in it, with a ash, ash up the middle, the hollow either side. You've got to build up the back of that sh oval it, make it round in the middle so that when you join the paddle, you get a long splice joint in, it's got to be round. You've got to then oval it where your hand grips it to give you to give you the actual um, index of where the, the blade is, and then you've got to uh, fit a, a stabilising rib into it and shape that rib. How the heck do I do this? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, my dad's dad was involved with the, with the uh, a small but twelve hundred foot square. It was an old billiard hall with a shop front on it, and this was my workshop and. This was all. This was all developed there. Uh, I already had some experience in laminating for for dinghy racing and tillers and all sorts of things. So I knew a bit about wood, and I can I wax very eloquent about how to treat wood as well to get the best bond and all that stuff. I'll not do that now. But <laughs> anyway, um, how the heck do I make a curved blade? So I'd studied as a civil engineer, and they used to take cubes off every bridge, for every concrete. Uh, pour, they would take a six inch square cube off that bridge in a metal mould, wait for seven days for it to cure or however long they, they gave it, and then it would be crushed to make sure that pour was correct. Mm. And the finish was always really good on that. So, you know, my mind is fortunately one of these minds that kind of secretes away things that I think might be of use, of use in future. And I thought, wait a minute, why can't I make a concrete tool? And that's exactly what I did. I made a wooden former to the double curve shape. I cast concrete onto that, put a silicon uh, release finish onto that, cast the other half. Now the press, I've got to press this under a high pressure. So what do I do? Oh, I'd seen a letter press. I'd seen big ones. So I got onto my local auctioneer who happened to be uh, in the sailing club and I knew him well. He was back within minutes almost with a, ma a massive letterpress. So the concrete tool was put in the letterpress and I pressed my first curved blade. But we had to have an absolutely accurate curve to glue this to on the shaft, build up at the back of the shaft. So it was all shaped to take the blade. And um, I've done drawings in my book actually showing all these different things. So it makes it much more clear. But so my father and I made a profile sander uh, with an electric motor, which worked perfectly to sand this after it had been bandsawed to, to the exact shape. And then we made a hydraulic press to hold the, the blade onto the the, sha the spine while it was curing and then glue a tramline system to glue the, the rib into the blade itself. So there I had, you know, a, a rough paddle made and it, it just finished it from there. But when, when I showed it to Marion, who's still in London, she said, if you can make paddles, uh, I can sell them. So I thought, right, well, I'll have a go at making another one. So the first one was obviously for her, but I thought I've got to be able to make them quicker. So as you probably know, glue sets better at a higher temperature than a lower temperature. So mm -hmm. I had to heat the tool 
So I had a Mr. Bryant from the Electricity Board. Our, our workshop became a sort of quite, you know, a lot of, of, of people come in just to see what we're up to because we're a bit different. <laughs> so Mr. Bryant was in regularly to see how we're getting on. So I'd just finished casting this green tool. You know, it was just been cast with, you know, the, the, um, the heating elements you get for kettles and ovens that are sort of, they're a, a, mineral, a mineral core powder core with copper copper uh, heating element and copper outside you know you can bend them to shape to fit anything you want pretty much i got two of these with the right length and you get the terminal lens and everything fitted bent them cast the concrete round them was ready to go when mr bryant came in and i was just about to switch this on and he threw up his hands in horror and said God, you can't do that he said they'll explode like a bomb <laughs> <laughs> apparently there's so much moisture in there that it would turn to steam around the, the elements, you know, and blow the whole thing apart. So he caught us just in time with that. So the soil went off and he got us a Honeywell system to give us the temperature gradient that we should be curing at to get these tools working properly. And they became my tool to make umpteen blades for the first year of production before I went on to aluminium tools and that sort of thing. So you're casting these initial blades out of concrete. Or you're, yes. Sorry, you're, you're using... No, they have tools, yeah. yes. Yeah, you're using... And then squeezing like plywood in between, you know, you cross ply. Right. So you use a plywood grade, because you get plywood millimeter, two millimeters, three millimeters thick. And then you got... What fired the finishing grade veneer was the cost of making solid furniture, you know, at that time was prohibitive. So they developed a, a very thin veneer which is only 0.56 of a millimeter thick sliced with a massive guillotine off a square log and that faced all your plywood to give you a nice you know oak finish or a mississippi or whatever you wanted so i used that for the face of the blade to give me a lovely finish and i used two millimeter thick uh, constructional plywood for the back of the blade and it worked so well so your initial blades are being cast with a concrete form and they're casting out of wood yes okay all right. Now, how did that lead you to then uh, using glass fiber? Well, we produced wooden blades for years and years and years and years. And then the big, pe the big pen, I call it the big pen age, came along. People started thinking, wait a minute, it's quite complicated. And you need a lot of machinery to make wooden paddles. Because I used to get quite irritated at times at exhibitions. People would say to you, oh, you, don't make, you, only, make, you only make paddles, you don't make boats. And knowing at that time that a bucket of resin, a brush, and you know, I obviously had a high degree of skill, some fiberglass, and you can lay up a boat. But I had d dozens of bespoke equipment, specially made machines in my workshop you know, to make a paddle. So, and it proved to be that actually, that nobody had any idea what the technical involvement in making paddles, unless they saw it, you know, and quite staggered normally. Mm -hmm. And then that took us into having to suddenly and I had to change all my tooling. You know, I had to make hand tools to make them by hand initially because the market just changed over very quickly. It was the throwaway age. You don't want to varnish your paddle at the end of the season. You want to just, you know, use it, abuse it and throw it away kind of thing. So you had a number of firsts, glass fiber, sha or glass fiber blades, composite shafts, index grips, crankshafts. Yes, and that's where the exciting part of the, the business started actually because the, the first shaft I got Dad, my father got a fiberglass. Now, Hardy's of Anik, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're world famous for rods, fishing rods. Mm -hmm. And they made split cane rods. But they also 
were just starting to make fiberglass rods. And my father got one and I looked and thought, wait a minute, that's perfect for a paddle shaft. So I got onto Hardy's of Anik and I found that I got on so well with much bigger companies. You know, if you got the right person, my goodness, they fell over themselves for a small company like ours, you know, and it was great. So I finished up with a butt end of two deep sea fishing rods, which were just the right diameter for a shaft, but tapered to either end. And I put blades on and my goodness, not only did I have a lovely light paddle, but I had a shaft that could bend, so long as you didn't take it beyond its elastic limit, half a million times without fatiguing. Now, every racing paddle, where below the hand would always form a crack slowly, where you had a hard spot, you know, the, the, the spruce would bend round that and form a crack. And eventually you had to scoop that out and put a new piece of wood in or throw it away because it could break on a start line. Here was something that would last for virtually ever. But then it led on to getting a company to make them parallel tubes, which was perfect. And then Marion said to me, why don't we make our own tubes? So I said, why don't we? <laughs> you know, I thought I'd virtually try anything. So the company supplied us with the pre-preg. Now, I don't know if you know anything about tube making. No, fiberglass I don't. Well, it's very, it's very interesting because what they do is they will pre-impregnate fiberglass, cloth, or carbon, or Kevlar. And what they do is they post-cure it to a certain point where it's touch dry. So you can now roll it back up and use it on a rolling table, which is warmed up. And the mandrel, you roll it round to get your internal diameters warmed up and it, it tacks on. So it's perfect. You just roll it on. One of the other developments was the crankshaft. So tell us about how that came to be. Right. You know, it's typical of, typical of design. Now, if I just tell you the, the incredible versatility of this system, because now you have a tube which you can orient the fibers. It's not like wood where you could have a weak grain or a cross grain. Or, you can orient these fibers, orient the fibers in any direction you want. Then, of course, I just got the straight, the straight tube shorted. When Chris Hawksworth of Whitewater had us over for a meet, a meet, and he said, this is the latest, and this is the crankshaft. And it was a fellow called Andrew, Andrew Bruce who was crank mad. I mean, everything should be cranked, all tools, everything. And he'd come up with this lazy Z shape. Now, great for slalom in the sense that it immediately gives you a bit of leverage, you know, because the only lever you have in a straight shaft is the diameter of the shaft. You know, you've got to grip it really tight to do anything with the blade. So you've now got an offset. But the thing was, for a left-handed paddler, it was like a, a droop handlebar. On the right-hand paddle, it was like a and then a Z when going up the way, not just evenly. So I looked at this and I thought, I said, for a start, I thought, I've got to, I've got to be able to make this in carbon, you know, in, in, in a car. How the heck am I going to do that? You know, I don't have the setup for it. So that was the first headache. The next was when I finally made a double torque and it was using the simple, and I can't really divulge because I've had people on asking me how, how I did it. It's the simplest way of doing things, very simple way of doing it. But I could get curves, I could get a Z shape, I could get whatever I wanted by rolling it initially. 
and then doing this little trick to put it into the curve. So I looked at this the double turn and thought, that's not right. <laughs> that's not right for directional paddling. So I drew it out and as soon as I drew the, the modified, I could see that you were pulling ahead of the blade. I thought, whoa, crank. You've immediately got natural stability in the blade. So instead of cutting and slicing when you put a blade in the water, you can put it in at any angle and it'll stabilize. And it, that's what it did. And people were saying, I can go out in rougher water than I ever thought I could. They said, it's cured my wrist problems. I had um, an American expedition went round Cape Horn in doubles and one of them got salmonella and the other had to, he got wrist, terrible wrist problems with his straight shaft. Somebody had one of my cramps, it's changed over, wrist problems went, back to straight shaft, wrist problems returned, back to the crank, they went. So it literally, it literally saved the day. And, I, you know, it's very often a simple solution to something that can be, you know, quite, uh, quite profound, you know, it can go a long way. So what was your initial reason for designing the crank? Well, I felt this guy had something, uh, but I, I just could not. And of course, I phoned him up and said, I've, I'd come up with this other idea. And he said, ah, that's, no, that's no good. We spent hours arguing about the two shapes. I said, right, the proof's in the eating. We'll see what happens. We'll see right. which will tell the most. So I actually finished up that I, shortly after that, Fix won the World and Atlanta Olympics using my modified crank. And quite a number of slalom paddles went on to do the same, you know, so it was used very successfully, both in uh, in very much in sea kayak. And in fact, most expeditions were using the Lendl paddles with cranks. So you sold Lendl in 2006. Why? I hit the buffers. I did the, I did the, I went down the Grand Canyon in an open canoe, believe it or not. Okay. With a friend, came back three feet off the ground, absolutely raving about everything. The following year, I had fibrillation that you just, I thought I was going to die, to be honest. Mm. And so really I've had uh, umpteen operations to try and sort it. I never, never managed to sort it. So my health has suffered since over the last 30 years, I suppose. Okay. Uh, 90, 90, 1998, yeah, it was the year after the canyon. I've not been, you know, I would recover and then I would get a terrible heart okay. problem again. And so... But up to that point about selling the business, it's the dynamics of the whole thing was, you know, I was the design. I came up, ideas were always bubbling up in my head. The family were involved, a very difficult decision. But I could see that um, there could be problems with future design and various things. Uh, we were approached. I don't know whether to use names here or not, but, you know, I, I was so let down really by the whole thing. But we were bought by a very, very, very wealthy company in the States. They approached us because they wanted a, they have a sports division. They wanted a flagship paddle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, they had me on as a consultant for, if I tell you, they do rotor molding and they do uh, right. open canoes. Yeah. So you probably know who it is. But yeah, anyway, um, yeah, you do. Yeah. I mean, they had engineers there, lovely guys, but I was often had to fly out to solve a problem now i told you about the orientation of fibers on the on the cranks you know it had to be plus minus 45 on bends so and then there was a tape went round that to hold everything together while it cured in the oven now i flew all the way out to boston and then up to up to um where they were and uh about five or ten minutes i 
I, I could see exactly what you know to do uh, and I felt I know there's quite a lot of problems with product and I had to I got involved in designing a non-destruct system to check things which you know was going the wrong way the padlock system which was uh, although I say it myself was absolutely revolutionary I mean for stockists for every from every conceivable angle was going so well there it was they were doing so much good so much good and then they suddenly there was the recession uh, I think they found Lendl was far too much of a craft and it really had to love what you were doing and unfortunately my son who handled the padlock side here it was he and his wife weren't keen to move, move to the states because they were offered work there and needed somebody who really loved what they were doing to keep everything right if if you the padlock system relied on on um, on size being accurate and if you've got one i mean i i nearly died when i went over to one of their symposiums and i couldn't get the blade into the shaft well it's it's nice to see the the brand come back to its prominence yes yes well they, it was nice that uh, there was there was kind of rumors that nobody wanted to see well there were certain paddlers didn't want to see it that the name die so that was nice yes yeah you know john i've been so lucky to have had the experiences i've had both paddling and and uh, in business but i've mainly talked about business actually but i mean derek asked asked me to go on an expedition to alaska which was absolutely out of this world uh, derek hutchinson and mm -hmm. he only knew me by repute really and we'd met at a pub in in london at one of the exhibitions and, and then I took my son to Newfoundland and we'd, I mean, I've sat beside killer whales and humpback whales feeding and, you know, incredible. So tell us about one of your favorite expeditions. Well, I have to say, oh gosh, I, they were so different. Uh, Derek's one was three weeks, Prince William Sound, just scenery to die for. Very much like Scottish weather, good days and bad days, prolific sea life, you know, uh, Derek, this was 1980. Now, the Nordcap expedition had been five years before that. So expeditions were a thing of fairly new. Now, as far as I knew, I don't know whether any paddlers had ever paddled with killer whales or not before, but Derek assured me before we went that he was paranoid about bears, by the way, <laughs> but he said we went on the kind of killer whales men menu. So we all had practice with pump action with shotguns before we left. George Peck was one of our team members. There was five of us. He was the magistrate for the whole of the Seward Peninsula. So we got a gun with a, we got a pump action riot gun, folding stock without any problem at all. And to walk into a gun shop and just pick a gun like that. <laughs> so this remained during the day strapped between, I don't know how Derek got into his boat, but he's in his boat with his gun strapped between his legs. <laughs> And so the trip goes on and we see killer whales in the distance. We have loads of bear activity around the tents at night, loads of signs of bears. The only time we have any real danger was when I go ashore to recce for a campsite and a little baby bear runs out the trees. No. Now the trees grow right down to the high water mark there, you know, mm -hmm. in Prince Lewis. So where was mummy bear? So they, and I'm armed with a paddle and Derek's on the water with a gun strap between his legs. <laughs> so fortunately mummy bear didn't appear. So we went to the other side of the bay. But um, when we saw a pod of killer whales about a mile and a half offshore, George Peck, the American lad, myself and Derek decided to paddle out. 
uh, Tom Caskey and Chris Jowsey, who were with us, said, oh, you'll never see them again. They decided to go on and look for a campsite. So out we go. Now, the waters, you've got to visualize mountains, snow peak mountains round about, glaciers, pine trees, islands, just an amazing back rock, flat cam water. George is paddling along. We're fairly close to him. And then a six foot fin rises up right beside him. Wow, that'll be surprising. Can you imagine what our pulses did? <laughs> My goodness. So then there's three females circling around further off, but the bull has a youngster with him. Now, you then think in the wild, going anywhere near a wild animal who has got young, it's not really ideal. No. So, you know, so it, the experience was astounding. That bull swam round us, breached. The little one tried to do exactly what he was doing. And it was as if he was saying to us, and I'm convinced of it, are you showing his off? Joy is off his offspring to us. And he, with his sonar, he could penetrate our thin skinned kayaks and read us like a book. He would know we were scared of our wits, <laughs> that we weren't any threat, and that we were, I'm sure he could tell we were interested in, in what they were up to. So, and the females were disdainfully sort of swimming in a bigger circle around, oh, he's showing him off again, kind of set attitude. The paddle was just. You couldn't, you couldn't get anything better. Just sun going down and oh, beautiful. As a uh, as a Olympian flatwater paddler and yes. as a paddle designer, what's one thing that you would say that would help improve most people's stroke? The right length of paddle, I think, would be very important. The right size of paddle blade as well. You know, I think your paddle has got to be tailored to your whether you want to. You know, if you're a big strong person and can pull all day, fair enough. If you're a light person, you want that's why we went down to archipelago size because, you know, you could you could stroke all day with that and you know not overtax yourself. So I think blade size and, and paddle length. You don't be bearing the, the blade and the shaft in the shell in the water, you know, half the shaft. So if you were selecting uh, blade size and paddle length, what would you look for? Now I'd probably look for an archipelago <laughs> at my age. <laughs> <laughs> my racing length was seven foot three two two one. And I think that was too long, to be honest with you. I think a 218, 216 is probably quite a nice length for a... a no, see, normal sea boats are... Or modern sea boats are quite narrow, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, so you don't want a long, too long a paddle. Well, this is where the padlock system came, because I had a design where you could, you could actually alter it by five centimetres, you know, uh, and lock it in any position, uh, any angle. You literally had a paddle you could set to any angle and a, a, a five five centimetre length adjustment. So your good old Scottish paddlers paddled flat going downwind, feathered into the wind, and would feather on a side wind so that the edge of the blade was, you know, so you, you've, there's a lot of things been lost, I think, that, uh, that could be regained. Certainly with a padlock system, you could do all of that because you can adjust it, you know, wherever you are. With a one-piece paddle or, a, or a, even a centre-jointed paddle, it's not quite so... I suppose you could have a certain degree. There are centre joints that are not too bad, I suppose. The great thing about the padlock system was that there was nothing protruding, just a wee top of a wee button. I don't like the dihedral, which you favour in the States. The dihedral face, I don't favour. I prefer the actual rib uh, in the paddle, you know, to give you a, a very good directional stability. 
Tell our listeners your, your difference between a dihedral and... A, a... Well, a dihedral is starting at the center and sort of in a slow curve towards the edge. Sort of the edge then is behind the, almost behind the rib, if you like. Whereas my paddles were all designed with a rib, sharp rib run, running down the middle and a, quite a spooned blade. So it really gripped the water, you know. But whether that's as predominant now, I'm not sure. I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't think so. But I think the modified crank in any paddle, apart from a wing, obviously, <clears throat> or a racing wing, works exceptionally well for safety. And, and a number of people have said, I, can, I feel much safer in, in rough water because I can drop that blade in anywhere and it stabilizes immediately. I mean, it's a simple principle. And uh, I think that possibly is one of the best designs I had, really. I would say, and it's simple. Aside from your uh, your your personal paddle designs, what would you say has been the biggest advancement in modern sea kayaking in the last, say, 20, 30 years? Oh, I think the fiberglass boat with the, with, you know, with bulk, or a composite boat with bulkheads and and hatches. I mean, when we went to Alaska, it was it was the wee dinghy hatch, you know, six inch okay. diameter hatch. <laughs> and we had to get our sleeping bags into a sausage. You know, and <laughs> if you didn't get it right down to the bottom, you had to start again, you know, and then force it through this tiny little hatch. Tell us about behind the paddle. Well, it starts off, uh, I've given you bits of it. I started writing it really as a family history because my grandfather did a heck of a lot. And there's nothing, re I can only remember snippets of family talk, you know, and things. And it really started off as a just something for the family to read. But I've got a great friend, John Gould, who I was giving... 60 pages at a time, roughly. And John's very good at English and very good at, I mean, I was a bit shotgun, pup, uh, what do you call it, punctuation at times. Okay. So he started out with punctuation. And uh, he said, you know, this is worth publishing, Alistair. I said, oh, yeah, you're havering. You know, <laughs> havering is the word we use here. You're talking nonsense. But so that's really how it evolved. And it was during this period when, you know, I'm, you know, I love a project. And I, as I've said to you earlier, I've been kind of, I hit the buffers at quite a young age, 59. And, you know, I, I got back to health between my different heart problems, but I just no sooner got back than I was hit again. And, you know, it took me about three or four years to write the book, draw, do the drawings, and it just kept my brain active. And I think it gave me a project. And probably, I'm sure, very much like yourself, you like to do things properly. And the last thing you want to do is produce something that everybody says, oh, God, that's a terrible bit of writing, <laughs> you know. So I've had some fantastic reviews back. So, you know, I've been absolutely thrilled, really. that And to see something you've... I can't believe I've written that, but anybody can write a book. I mean, yeah. if I can write a book, anybody can write a book. Does Marion still have that first paddle? Oh, gosh. I don't think she does, no, because I, I, I put a marketry M into it. But I've got I've got my Rapido K1 uh, and my Hunter, which was the next boat I bought. Now, my Rapido went off after Tokyo. Uh, I sold it in 66 to get a more up-to-date boat, the Hunter. And it was sold for me in London. And that was it. I thought that would be the last I would see of it. And about 30 years later, more, more maybe. We were having a reunion up here in Scotland for some of the old ra ra racing team. And we'd had dinner and we're all sitting there and the door opens into the dining room and in walks Dr. Bernard Watkins, our team doctor, and a gentleman called Bob Lowry who was in the team 
in Tokyo, and they're carrying my my repeater. I could, you know, I couldn't believe my eyes. After all these years, I'd bought bought back, and I just, well, I, I was as I am now. I was in tears, so I can now go and touch it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god, that's beautiful. So wasn't that wasn't that an incredible gesture? It was. He had bought it and had it done up and sent it and brought it back to me. If that's not team friendship, yeah, I don't know what is. I've been lucky. So how can listeners reach you and learn more? What an email address? Something. I'm on Facebook, by the way. Okay. I've been dragging. I've been dragged, skeeking and scrimming into them <laughs> up to date. <laughs> on Facebook. So if anybody wants to contact me. <laughs> Or do you want, do you like my? You've got my email, haven't you? Sure, I can I can add that to the show notes if you'd like. I can also add your Facebook presence to the show notes. Right, that's great. Yeah. All right, I will include those. Right. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've loved hearing your stories. The really? stories are yes. Uh, <laughs> you bored to tears. No, no. Of a of a life well lived and a, a life of wonderful paddling adventures. Well, it's meeting people like yourself that make it worthwhile, honestly. With the enthusiasts, I love the enthusiasts in this world, and I met a lot of enthusiasts. You know how you meet some people and you're drinking drained at the end of it, you know, <laughs> some, some, suck, it, suck, it, suck it out of you. But the number of people I've met in business and on, in sport who have just made life wonderful, you know, and you just get that immediate rapport and 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 enthusiasm wells out of them it's just wonderful it's just great well, so. well thank you for your for your contributions to the sport and uh so i have one final question and uh that final question is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on paddling the blue well do you want me to give you a wee list i'll see if i can sure <laughs> or just one, one pair oh many would be there, great there, there are a number <laughs> uh, um peter bray's one he crossed the Atlantic from Newfoundland in the North Atlantic. The right. person to ever have done that. There's Andy Fleck, who paddled around Nova Scotia. And I'll try and get you details on all of them. There's Brian Wilson, all right. Blazing Paddles. Uh, you, you haven't got a copy of that book. I'll see, have to see if I can get you one. Oh, wonderful. It's, it's very good. Also, Paul Grogan. And he's written a book called Barbed Wire and Babishkas. <laughs> that sounds like fun. It's, it's a, my sister's got a copy and she's read it about three or four times. She just loves <laughs> it. It's very amusing. Yeah, it's very good. Wonderful. Well, I will connect with you offline and we'll, uh, we'll get contact information for Andy, Brian, Peter, and Paul. And, yes. And look forward I'll, to seeing I'll get them on the show. i information as soon as I can. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, again, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've, <laughs> I've had a wonderful time uh, speaking with you and hearing about your life of, of adventure. Thank you. Thank you. Your pleasure. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, Use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient. Have the endurance to handle long days in the boat. Drive through the toughest waves or white water. Protect your body against common paddling injuries. And while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds. And who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Alistair truly brought joy to today's interview. You've got to love the path he took to get to the Olympics. 
I love hearing about the founding days of entrepreneurial companies and what inspired them, and his story was definitely fun. Now, Alistair mentioned his book, Behind the Paddle. It's a great read that goes deeper than our conversation and dives into all the stuff that he's thankful for. I will have a link in the show notes at www.paddlingtheblue.com, episode 86, so you can pick up a copy for yourself. Thanks again to our partners at Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking for extending special offers to you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com. Use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order. And visit onlineseakayaking.com and take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and you'll get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next episode, we will talk with the one and only Nigel Dennis. Nigel is one of the most requested guests by other guests of the show, and we're going to bring him to you. So we'll chat about some of his favorite expeditions and, of course, Sea Kayak UK. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.